0: Hey, guys, man, I am excited about this series, the end. Um, we are we are looking, I believe, at the end times. I believe that we are living in the last of the last days. And um so I'm excited to talk about the book of Revelation. This is probably one of the most misunderstood books in the Bible. It's probably one of the most avoided books in the Bible. and uh, But it's one of the books in the Bible that ex, uh, inspires the most interest and excitement when you go to talk about it because people look at the book of Revelation, they go, what? So we're gonna break it down. I'm tr- Let me tell you kind of my approach. My approach is I'm trying to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Revelation. But if we did that, we could probably spend about six years in the book of Revelation. So I'm trying to take like a a jet airplane trip through the book of Revelation, and we'll kind of skim through some parts that are— they're not less important, but they're they're just uh, they kind of take longer to dig through, and they don't have probably the impact that you're looking for right now at this point in your life. So, we're going to kind of speed through a couple of sections. But today we're going to be looking at at uh, a large chunk of the Book of Revelation. We're going to be going through Revelation one nineteen all the way through chapter 4, verse 11. And so today as we look at this, I'm excited to share some truth from God's Word with you because the Bible tells us that blessed are people when they read and hear the book of Revelation. So this is really exciting. Let me give a quick update, though, just about what's going on in church because you're not here, and because we don't get to see each other, um, it makes it difficult to communicate what is going on In the life of your local church. And I gotta tell you guys, we are in an exciting time. This is an unprecedented time. And I know that it can be frustrating and I know that it can be discouraging. And I want you to be encouraged, okay? Because the church of Jesus Christ is not canceled. The church is continuing to move, the church is continuing to accomplish. And I'm telling you right now, at times of struggle, times of difficulty for the local church are usually the times when the church thrives the most. It forces us outside of the box. It causes us to think more creatively. It makes us do things that we wouldn't ordinarily do, because when you're out of your comfort zone, you're forced to do things that are just different, and I think that that is good. I think it's important so what has happened for us over the last uh, couple of weeks, we have filed, uh, we have put together all the paperwork to file for incorporation for Hope City Ministries, which is a big deal. So we're going to be filing those papers um, coming up very quickly. Um, we worked this week to put together our marketing strategy for the fall launch of the School of Urban Missions right here in Baltimore. At your church, and I just want to tell you, I am excited about this launch. Right now, schools are scrambling trying to figure out what they're going to do for um, for education come the fall we're not scrambling at all because we were designed to do virtual classrooms. We were designed for Zoom calls and everybody else is just kind of getting acclimated to Zoom. Well, we've been doing Zoom with School of Urban Missions for about the last seven years. So it's really, really cool to see how God has put together this timing. So if you're looking for somebody that is wanting to do school, uh, looking to go into full-time ministry, this is the opportunity. This is a four-year degree that you can get in three Years and it costs about ten grand a year to do it. So that's a full four-year degree for thirty thousand dollars, and it's unheard of. The other part of SUM that is really cool is the fact that SUM is fully accredited. It has the highest level of regional accreditation that you can get for any school. It is accredited through WASC, and um, that's the same people that give accreditation to UC Berkeley. So. This degree will travel this. I I just kind of trying to give you some highlights. We pastor Mike and Loretta have, have launched the boxes of hope. This is something that we believe is going to keep going long after the COVID-19 crisis has passed. People in Baltimore will continue to be in positions where they need somebody to come along and give them some help and give them some hope, give them some groceries in their time of need. We're going to continue to do that as much as we can moving forward. We're um, we feel like that we're gaining some traction. We've been we've amped up our feeding ministry again, so we're feeding people on Wednesdays. Um, we've given out a couple hundred meals in the last few weeks, and um, so we just feel like God is doing some things. Pastor Mary and Grace have put together some awesome content for our kids ministry. Um, if you haven't been paying attention, later today we're going to be posting a YouTube video with kids' church, so you can watch kids' church with your kids. Some great content there. So we are we are not canceled. We are continuing to move forward. Yes, it looks different. Yes, it feels different. No, I don't like the fact that we're not able to be together and hug and connect and, and see each other face to face. But guys, I'm telling you, God is doing something in the church in this season that can only be done in this season. I think sometimes we spend our lives waiting for the next season to start and kind of begrudging the season that we're in. And I think it's a bit of a smack in the face to God because God wants to use this season to do something in your life that he can only do during this season. Don't move past it too quick. Allow God to do in you what he can only do in you during this time. This is a moment from God. All right, if you've got your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter one. Revelation chapter one. If you don't have your Bible the good news is you don't have to get in your car and go home and get it. You could just walk in the other room and grab it and come and sit back down. I encourage you to use your paper Bible if you have it, because you can underline, you can write some notes. It's a great way to kind of stay in the word and have some, uh, some notes to look back at later. So let's look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Um, this is where we ended last week, but we're going to start here again. Um, This is Jesus speaking to John. John has experienced this revelation on the Isle of Patmos, and Jesus speaks and says, write down what you have seen, the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. It seems to me that this is a pattern for the book of Revelation. It's an outline for how the book is to be written, and that's exactly what John does. So John writes down what has what he has seen, and we talked about that last week. He has this revelation of Jesus standing before him, and so this is something that he saw, verse 13 of Revelation 1 says, uh, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He had a gold sash across his chest, and he goes on to describe Jesus. So he records what he has seen, and then Record what you are seeing. That means what's going on right now. And so um, so what's happening now is the, the letters to the churches are being written. And so over the next uh, few chapters here, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, we read what Jesus speaks to the churches. And so we're going to look at that in just a second. And then he says, then write about the things that will happen. And and the way that that word is translated is write about what happens after this. So after the church age, after this, write about what's going to happen in the future. And so that's kind of what happens in chapter four and beyond as we're looking at what future events are going to take place. So Um, if we look at verse 20, then it says, this is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now here's something that's interesting because the book of revelation is written with a lot of symbolism, and so you're going to read about things like seven stars and seven lampstands, and you're going to read about beasts rising out of the ocean, and you're going to read about a dragon and horns coming out of heads and all kinds of weird symbols that people often struggle to to wrap meaning around. But a lot of the symbols actually come with their own meaning, the The meaning is given in scripture. So right here, we see that the the seven stars that were in Jesus' right hand, we read about that earlier, there are seven stars in Jesus' hand, and it's the seven angels of the churches. Now, the word that's used for angels is just simply a word, messenger, Most scholars believe that these aren't real like supernatural angels, not like guardian angels for a church, but more so probably the leader of that local church. So the apostle or the pastor that was leading that was hearing from God and giving words to the churches. And so the seven messengers, the seven stars in Jesus' right hand. And then you have the seven lampstands. I think it's really cool that lampstands signify churches because what does a lampstand do? A lampstand elevates a light, doesn't it? Makes it, so the reason that they don't put light bulbs on the floor in your house are number one, so you don't step on them, but number two, you get better light the higher it is. And and so when you look at a lampstand, what's it do? It gets the light up so it can be noticed. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. So so what is the job of the church? Well, it's to elevate Jesus. It's to lift him up. And so that's what we see here in this passage. So why are symbols important? Why is this an important thing to do? Number one, symbolism stands the test of time. When, when you think about the events that unfold in the book of Revelation, a lot of it would not have made sense to John as he's seeing it because it's happening much, much later. You can't describe things like nuclear war. You can't describe things like the war machines that we have now, Apache helicopters, all of those things. There's no way that you could possibly describe that to a first century uh, believer. So symbols stand the test of time and they transcend the language. They also, I would say, evoke a certain amount of emotion. If you said, if you were to say a political leader will rise up and he will deceive people, it doesn't um, give the same type of emotion that you get when it says a beast rose up out of the sea. It it gives it totally different impact for you emotionally. It's a, it's a picture that really makes you feel a certain way. And so I think that is a part of the symbolism. Another thing that it does is it helps to anchor the text. If you think about the way that this is written, um, to you and I, it doesn't even make as much sense as it would to a, a Jewish believer in the first century because they were totally familiar. With the apocalyptic writing in, in the book of Daniel, in the book of. Ezra in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, They were very familiar with that writing, and a lot of the symbolism was attached to what had already been written. And then if you look at the lampstands and some of the other things that are included in these passages, they also connect to the the construction of the tabernacle and the construction of the temple. And these are all symbols and ideas that people would have been familiar with. And so here we have... um, Here we have uh, the the fourth and final thing that I believe that symbolism does is it gave the early church some plausible deniability, okay? They are in a persecuted church. They are in an, an a situation that is very, very difficult. And as they are in this situation, what begins to happen is if they, if John writes this book of Revelation, gets out to the churches and a Roman soldier or a Roman leader finds it and they begin to read it and, and he's doing this predictive kind of talk, they're going to say, whoa, we've got some intelligence. We're going to go after these guys. But when you talk about beasts and stars and lampstands and the sea and all of that stuff. If you're a Roman soldier and you pick it up and you read it, they're like, these guys are goofy. Um, No, we we don't have anything to worry about. So that's, I think, a big part of of what we read here. So now if you were to dive into Revelation chapter two um, and start to read through, you're going to get introduced to the seven churches of Revelation. These were seven real churches that existed during the time John is writing the book of Revelation. And so it takes us all the way through the end of chapter three, and we see the churches that are listed. You have the church of Ephesus. Um, the church of Ephesus was very, very popular in its, in its time. Um, it was, Ephesus was a very important city of the day. As a matter of fact, Ephesus housed one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I think we have a picture of it that we're going to put up real fast. This is the temple of Artemis. That was located in, um, in, in Ephesus. Um, another important fact about the church at Ephesus is that it was founded by the Apostle Paul. So Paul started the church in Ephesus that John is now writing to. And it was the most prominent church in all of Asia Minor, which is, of course, modern-day Turkey. And then we have the church of Smyrna. Smyrna is the home of a very famous Greek author named Homer. He wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, and this is his hometown. This was also um, a, a city that was the church was pastored by a guy named Polycarp. And Polycarp was a disciple of John the Revelator. So he would have had a lot to say. Matter of fact, Polycarp eventually was martyred in the city of Smyrna. Then we have Pergamos, which was a capital in that region, was a capital city in that region. It had a massive library that kind of rivaled the great library of Alexandria. Then you have Thyatira, It was uh, founded under Alexander the Great and was a big trade city. As a matter of fact, it was known for uh, its purple dye, and one of Paul's disciples, Lydia, was from that area. Uh, Then you have Sardis and finally Laodicea. Laodicea may be the most famous um, church of all of the seven churches because it's the one that we think about most often. Um, Laodicea is the church that was lukewarm and, and... Jesus talks about that He will vomit that church out of His mouth. It's kind of a crazy thing, but they were known for their trade, their banking, their medical school. They had an eye ointment. They also had black sheep in the region that were known for their fine wool that they used to make clothing. So that's kind of how they—that's um, kind of how they made a living um, and, and gave so much, uh, gained so much wealth during that time. Um, another piece of this. Now, here's an interesting part that, and again, I'm trying to kind of hyperspeed through this. There are some people that believe that the seven churches actually represent seven periods in church history. Because remember, from the time that Jesus rose from the dead to the time the rapture comes, this is called the church age, okay? and Or the age of grace. And during the church age, all of these different things will happen, so we had the the martyrdom of the early church and, and the spread, and then you have um, you have the the time with with the early ideas of theology that were rooted in the Latin Bible, and it kind of progresses all the way through and so there are different stages in church history. Some would say that each one of these seven churches represents a particular time in church history. I think that's it's fun to study, it's neat to look at, but I don't really see that as what is, is happening here. I don't think that's the point. I think there is something specific that each church is identified by that kind of applies to different churches around the world. And I think that there are different ones of us that at different times we experience each of these things. So I'm just gonna quickly highlight what those facts are, okay? Number one, the church of Ephesus had forsaken its first love. Number two, The church of Smyrna uh, would suffer persecution, okay? So to the persecuted church around the world, what is being spoken to the church of Smyrna is deeply impacting and helpful. The American church is not experiencing persecution. Some people think that the restrictions that are placed on the church right now are are, uh, persecution, Guys, this is not persecution. This is something that is happening to everyone. Uh, Persecution is something that is limited in scope to the church, and it is violent, it is destructive, it is painful. That is not what's happening now, okay? Pergamum is the church that needed to repent. They had gotten so caught up in sin, they had a love affair with sin, and they needed to repent. Thyatira was a church that was plagued by a false prophet. And so the the word specifically to the church of Thyatira relates to the false prophecy. The church at Sardis is a church that had fallen asleep. And I think that that could be an American church. I think that that speaks to us as American churches. And a matter of fact, I think that this current season that we are in right now is waking up the church. And I am thankful that the church is waking up I think this is a moment. Um, the Church of Philadelphia. Um, outside of the Phillies and the Eagles, the Church of Phil No, I'm just kidding. They, they didn't have any pro sports then. But the, the, they were the church that endured patiently. Well, maybe that does apply because it took a long time for them to get a Super Bowl. I, I, I didn't want to hurt Philly fans, but I'm just saying it did take a while. So, But they were the church that endured patiently. And then finally, the church of Laodicea was a church that was lukewarm in their faith. The church that was lukewarm in their faith. All right, so we've kind of now sped through Revelation chapter two and Revelation chapter three and now we come to Revelation chapter four and we're gonna start with verse one. Verse one, it says, "Um, "'Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven.'" And the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. So do you hear that word there? After this. Remember, if you go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus says, speak about the things that you have seen, the things that you are seeing, and the things that will happen after this. And so what does John say? He says, I'm, these are the things that I saw after this. Okay. So this keys you into the fact that the outline now shifts to future happenings. These are not things that have happened. These are things that are yet to come. And so he says, and, and, and it's interesting to me that as you look at this, you see that the, um, this sounds super familiar. If you're familiar with the Bible, if you're a student of the Bible at all, we know that there's an event coming called the rapture, right? And what's going to happen at the rapture is that we're going to hear this trumpet sound, the voice of the archangel, and and the dead in Christ will rise first. And those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so when you hear this, man, it really sounds so much like what happens in First Thessalonians chapter 4. And we're going to turn over there in just a second. But listen to this next piece. It says, And instantly... I was in the spirit and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. So listen to what happens. John hears the trumpet, the voice of God, and he is instantly in heaven. So turn over now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I want you to think about this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to start with verse 13. 1 Thessalonians. Chapter four, verse 13, it says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. So what's happening with the Thessalonian church at this point is they already buy into the fact that they're going to be resurrected or they're going to meet Jesus when he returns. They already understand that they're familiar with the, the story that Jesus taught in John chapter 14, where he says, I've gone to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are many rooms. And, and he talks about how the people are going to be caught up with him and they're going to go to heaven and they're going to have a place of access to him there. And so, so as these guys know all about this, but, but they're kind of wondering, well, what's going to happen to my grandma, who already died, because I know that if I 'm alive, I get to go be with Jesus when he comes back, but what about my grandma and what about my grandpa, and they believed and but they're dead, so what's going to happen and so so Paul is trying to explain to them, hey, this is what's going to happen, and so verse fourteen. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. So if you look at this thing and you see how it works, right? We see what is going to happen. What happened to Jesus is going to happen to others who die. There's going to be this death event, but there will also be a resurrection event. Jesus was the first fruit of everybody who would rise from the dead. He was the first to be resurrected, but he wasn't the last to be resurrected. So as we look at this, we see that Jesus is going to come back. He's going to return. And when he returns, those who are dead are, Paul says, going to rise first. So there'll be this resurrection And they're going to come out. I guess they're going to rise first because they got six feet further to travel. You know, they got to get through the ground. And so they're coming up though to meet the Lord first. And then we are going to meet Jesus after that. I I always laugh because Daniel, when he was younger, used to always say, I want to live near a graveyard. I want to buy a house near a cemetery, dad, because when the rapture comes, I want to be there to watch it. And and I always thought, man, that would actually be really cool. Wouldn't it be neat to be visiting a graveyard when Jesus returns to call his church home and all of the graves start to split open and people start to come out? And I always think about uh, Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones and how this valley was spread with, with bones of people that died in war and, and animals that probably drug stuff off. And then as these bones are coming back together, as God is restoring them, they're coming together from all different places. I think about people that have been cremated and how God is going to reconstitute the ashes into a living body and people that have been disfigured um, from injuries and war. And as God starts to bring them back together and just the miracle that that will be, what an amazing thing that would be to witness. All right. So let's read on verse 16. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 15. It says, we tell you this directly from the Lord We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a command shouting with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who died will rise from their graves. Okay, so this is what we see. There's going to be this moment where Jesus comes out of heaven to reclaim his church. Now, this is different than the second coming of Christ, okay? There's the rapture and there's the second coming. These are two separate events. And the reason we know that is because when the second coming happens, we are not caught up in the air to meet Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus comes down and we are following him. This is Revelation 19.11 is when we come back with Jesus. So we will be raptured. After we're raptured, we go up to heaven for a seven-year honeymoon. This is a really neat season. And it, it actually is such a cool picture because this is the way the ancient Jewish weddings happened. It was a seven-day feast and during this 7-day feast the bride and groom would go away they would be hidden for a time and everybody's partying and feasting and then after this at the on the 7th day the the bride and groom would come back and the bridegroom would present his bride to everybody at the party isn't that a neat pairing of what Jesus the picture Jesus paints through this rapture of the church and then the 7 years of tribulation on earth, but the seven-year marriage supper of the Lamb, and we're banqueting and partying with Jesus, and then he returns to present his bride to the world that's waiting for his return. So the reason we know, another reason we know this is a, a separate event is because the rapture in First Thessalonians, it says that it's in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye. It happens quickly. It's unexpected. People don't know it's coming. But when Jesus returns in Revelation 19, It is something that the whole world can see. The Bible says every eye sees, everybody notices, and Jesus comes down. He doesn't stay caught up in the air, but he touches down on planet Earth at the Mount of Olives. The Bible says there's an earthquake, and I'm going to talk about this more in a few weeks, but there's an earthquake that splits the Mount of Olives open. It creates this valley, but we're riding back with Jesus as an army. So there's two separate events that are happening here, and it's very important to make this distinction. All right, so let's flip back now to Revelation chapter 4. Um, Revelation chapter 4. I want to read verse 1 again because I think this is a very powerful image. It says, Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven. It's interesting because Jesus refers to himself in, in the Gospel of John As the door. So who wrote the gospel of John? John. Who wrote Revelation? John. I think it's so cool that that John is picking up on something that he's already stated about Christ, and that is that he is the door. How do you get to heaven? You get to heaven through the door. There's no there's no gate with Saint Peter and a clipboard kind of checking people off as they come in. That's just kind of the seedbed for bad jokes, but it's not the reality of heaven. There's one way to get to heaven. It's through Jesus who is the door, and you go through him. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Do you see this image, this picture? And so the door is open in heaven. Now, here's something that's interesting. Because up to this point, excuse me, up to this point, we read Revelation chapter 1 through Revelation chapter 3. We hear the church mentioned 19 times in these passages. Now, from Revelation chapter 4 all the way to Revelation 19, we don't hear any mention of church in the entire book of Revelation. It's gone. It evaporates. It's only spoken of again when Jesus returns, second coming of Christ, with his church. That's the next time you hear about it. This is why, one of the reasons why I believe in a pre tribulation rapture. Okay, before the seven years starts, I believe that the church is evacuated to heaven. I believe that we go to heaven because starting from this point where, where John's kind of making the point about the rapture of the church. We don't hear about the church anymore. All we hear is about the wrath of God, the judgment of God poured out on a sinful world. And here's another interesting thing. Um, I believe it's 2 Thessalonians that talks about it, and I'll probably talk about it in the coming weeks. But it says that, that the church was not appointed for wrath. Okay, so let me explain something very, very important here. Is the church going to go through struggles and trials? Absolutely. Is the church going to go through what we could call tribulations? Absolutely. Right now, I would say we're in a season of tribulation. I believe that this tribulation will get worse before Jesus takes his church home. However, I believe that the great tribulation talked about in Revelation chapter 4 and beyond is something very different because it is specifically the wrath of God. And so there's this kind of tribulation and struggle that the church will go through And it's going to be tough, and Jesus promises that we're going to go through trials and tribulations, right? But then there's the great tribulation, which is God just dumping his wrath out on planet earth to try to get people to turn to him. Okay, this is very, very important because God's wrath is still God's grace in action because there are certain people that have not listened to God's grace up to this point. And even during the tribulation time, even during the seven years, God is still offering his grace to people through wrath so that some will turn and will get to experience eternal life in heaven. This is so, so important to see. And so, so as we look at this passage, we see how this is, um, this is the way that we connect. This is the way that we get to heaven. Um, so, so there are two places where heaven is open, okay? And, and we read about it right here in Revelation 4, verse 1 and 2. And that is where Jesus opens heaven and John goes up. Again, it's very, very similar in language and connection to, uh, to, to Thessalonians passage that we just read, uh, 417. And so I think this is key. Then the other piece of it is, again, like I said, in Revelation 19, 11, heaven is opened again for a trip back to earth. So that's, that's very important kind of bookends for what's happening during the tribulation period. Okay. So now here's something that I, I just want to talk about for a second, because there is a lot of teaching that has come out over the last couple of years where people are saying there's no such thing as a rapture. And, um, and one of their foundational arguments is the word rapture isn't even in the Bible, to which I would say the word Bible is not even in the Bible. So don't use that as the basis for your argument. Okay. There, there are a lot of things that aren't, spoken of in the Bible. For example, the omniscience of God, the all-knowing power of God is not mentioned in the Bible. That word is not in there anywhere, but the teaching, the idea, the concept of God's omniscience is all over the Bible. The omnipotence of God is not spoken of in the Bible, but the idea of his all-powerful nature is all over the Bible. Again, the omnipresence of God is not spoken of in the Bible. That word is not used, but his presence is clearly seen everywhere throughout here. the Trinity. Trinity is another word that is not included in the Bible, but the teaching of goddess three in one is all over the Bible. So it's it's kind of a, a, a misnomer to say, hey, because the word rapture is not in the Bible, you shouldn't uh, teach the rapture because it, I guess it would depend on which version of the Bible you're reading, okay? Because in 405 A.D., There was a man named Jerome that took the Greek Bible and translated it into Latin, okay? So I'm going to give a quick history lesson before we go back to this. And I know this is a lot of teaching, and I'm teaching, not preaching this, because I want you to get it conceptually okay? Yes, this applies, and if I'm preaching this, I'm telling you guys, hey, we have hope, and I want you to get that out of this message. I don't want this just to be something that is didactic, that is me telling you all about something you need to know from Scripture. I want you to understand, this is our great hope. We will meet Jesus in the air. The struggles of this life will be over when we see Jesus and he takes us to heaven. That's our great blessed hope, okay? Okay. But right now, I want you to understand some things about this so you can really get rooted and, and grounded in this teaching. So the Bible, as it has been produced over time, has gone through different, um, different periods of development. First, you had the Old Testament, Right then the New Testament letters. And as the New Testament letters were compiled, they were written in Greek. And so eventually what happened is for the Greek believers, the Hellenists is what they were called, the Greek believers needed the Bible translated in their language. So the Old Testament became translated into Greek so that they could use it. And that version of the Bible is called the Septuagint. The Septuagint then was taken by a a man named Jerome, and Jerome translated the entire Septuagint into Latin. And Latin for a thousand years from the time Jerome translated it in 405 AD all the way to the Reformation period, this was used as the primary Bible to develop theology for the church. The reason I'm telling you all of this is because the word in Latin for that we've been talking about here to be caught away, to be captured by, by the Lord snatched away, that word in Latin is rapire. It's the, way, the word that we use to get our word rapture. So rapire or rapurum is used in Latin in the Vulgate. And so this is important for you to understand because, yes, it is in the Bible. It's just in the Latin version of the Bible, and it's been translated for a little better understanding in our modern context. So, so while the word rapture may not be in your Bible, the concept is... There's a lot of debate as to when the rapture comes. I've made my case for why I believe that it comes at the beginning of the tribulation period. There are some that say, "Hey, about halfway through, when uh, when the antichrist exalts himself in the temple in Jerusalem, at that point, then the rapture is going to come." I don't see that in scripture. Again, there are some people that say there is no rapture at all, um, and and again. I think they're two very different events, the second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church that we read about in 1 Thessalonians 4. So, And then there are some people that believe that the rapture will come after the tribulation is over, that it's going to be this event that is kind of simultaneous with the second coming. Again, I don't see that. There's a lot that happens between Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 19 that seems to be um, implying that there's going to be a full seven years here. That we're dealing with, so that's my take on this thing. So here is where we stand as believers in Jesus. Um, I, I remember—I don't remember the context of the conversation I was having with Levi, but a few years ago, we were talking, and um, and somehow we were talking about dying and you know uh, maybe persecution and some different things. But um, but one of the things that struck me was he says, "You can't scare me with heaven." And I just love that statement because you can't. Well, how, how are you going to scare a believer by saying you're going to go to heaven? This is our hope. Like, that's what I'm living my whole life for. I can't wait to be in heaven. Like, this is exciting. No, I don't really want to go through the process of death. I don't think anybody's like, yeah, I can't wait to die. I don't, most of us aren't like that. But what I feel is, man, death is a doorway. It gets me to the presence of Jesus. And I can't wait for the moment that I get to be in the presence of Jesus. This is going to be so cool. So here we have verse 4, or um, I'm sorry, verse 2. Chapter four, it says, and instantly I was in the spirit and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. Think about this. When you get to heaven, what's the first thing you're gonna notice? It's not grandma. It's not your uncle Randy that you loved a lot. It's not your family members. It's not anybody that's preceded. You're going to notice the throne of God. It is the focal point of heaven. It's everything that heaven is about. It's about God on the throne. That's what heaven is all about. And as soon as John gets there, he sees it and he's like, oh man, I just saw Jesus. This is the moment I've been waiting for. Everything else kind of fades into the background and he just, he sees Jesus. And I believe that when we get to heaven, the only part of the Godhead that we are going to see physically is Jesus. I believe we're going to see him on the throne in the flesh, Jesus. But listen to how um, John describes it. He says, the one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian and the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. And here's the interesting thing. That I, I get when I read this. John, again, going back to what he wrote about Jesus in the beginning, right? John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was nothing made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light. Of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can't comprehend it. But now, in Revelation chapter four, he's faced with light with no darkness, and he can all of a sudden comprehend it. He says, "Whoa, I see it! It's like an emerald shining out of the throne of God. It's like jasper and carnelian, and like I can't even really describe. But the light and the color—it's just—it's amazing." When he sees the person of Jesus in the flesh, God the Father, God the Spirit, Jesus all embodied in the throne, and it's just this light emanating. It's going to be so amazing when we get to stand in the presence of God. Another thing that I think is really cool is that if you go all the way back to the book of Exodus and it describes how the breastplate of the priest was put together, the first stone that is listed is jasper, the last stone that is listed is carnelian. And it's almost as if God is putting an exclamation point on what the Jewish people knew of God. Because this, this this breastplate had jasper as the beginning, carnelian is the end. God is the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's kind of bringing all of these symbols to light in his person as he sits on the throne of heaven. Man, guys, I get excited about this. This is so, so cool. And then you read down to verse 4. It says, 24 thrones surrounded him, and 24 elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. From the thrones came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder, and in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystal. Man, guys, think about this. I I just want to talk briefly about the 24 elders sitting on the throne. People ask, what are the 24 elders? What is, what is that about? I believe, and it it seems to be taught throughout scripture because there are these, these places where Paul says things like, Hey, don't you know that you'll judge the angels? And we're all like, no, I I, actually, I didn't know. I didn't know that. And, And so what, what most scholars believe is that the, the two sets of 12 are representative of the 12 patriarchs. So um, that means Isaac's sons, all of, you know, Reuben and Dan and Naphtali and Simeon and Judah and, and Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so all of those would be represented by 12 thrones. And then the apostles would be represented with 12 thrones as well. And so it makes up this picture of the 24 elders representing church through history. And so most believe that's who it is. Some have made the point that in Revelation 5, the 24 elders are singing a song and the song says, the lamb has redeemed us. So angels don't need redemption. So there's no reason for an angelic being to say the lamb has redeemed us because the angelic beings that are in heaven haven't sinned. And so it seems that those 24 elders are people that have sinned and have been redeemed. And now they are sitting on thrones in the presence of God and, and this lightning flashes out of their crowns. And you just like, this image is so, so cool and so powerful. Can you imagine being in the throne room of heaven? And so In that moment, though, their only desire is to worship God. They're not interested in their crowns. They're not interested in the gold. They're not interested in the mansions. They're not interested in anything except God. And and this is where people get a little bit freaked out because they're like, man, heaven, I'm I'm afraid that heaven's going to be boring. I mean, I'm just going to be sitting on a cloud playing a harp in a white robe. No, you're not. That is something from uh, Looney Tunes cartoons from years gone by. That is not the biblical picture of what heaven is. The biblical picture of what heaven is, is that all of your joys are completed in a moment. Everything that you've anticipated, everything that you've longed for, everything that gives you joy in this season, fulfilled completely when you hit heaven. I was talking to somebody the other day about the fact that eternity Does not represent boredom. I believe that eternity represents the incapability of being bored. Okay? Boredom is rooted in time, it's about passing time. I'm so bored, I can't wait for the next thing. I wish I could just. That will not be the case in heaven. There is no boredom in heaven because there is no time in heaven. And you're not waiting for the next thing. You're only able to enjoy the moment because the moment is filled with the presence of God. If you think about, I think about the first time that I went to Disney World. And I walked into the park. It was even magical driving onto the parking lot because you've got the little statues and you know they bring you into the experience. And, and there's even a little bit of excitement waiting for the tram. And you're like, we're going to Disney world. And it's just very exciting. And then you walk in and you see all of the iconic things that make Disney World, Disney World. And, and it's so fun and so neat and so exciting. And, and, and you're walking in you're like, I can't believe this. This is so cool. Look at that. Look at that. I've only seen this in pictures. I've only imagined that this is so neat. This is so fun. That's just a small window into what heaven's going to be like. Because all of our hope that has been wrapped up in this moment when we cross the finish line and we step across the threshold of heaven, it's gonna be so beautiful, so powerful, so amazing when we stand in the presence of God. It's like, I've been waiting for this. I never imagined you were gonna be so beautiful. I never imagined that this was gonna be so awesome. I never imagined what love could feel like, realized like this. I never imagined what it was gonna be like to stand in your presence and to see you face to face. God. I never could have dreamed it was going to be like this. I never could have dreamed this. That's what heaven is going to be like. I want you in heaven with me. I want to live my life in such a way that when I stand before Jesus, there's a line of people behind me. And they're saying, hey, we're with him. Where with him, he invested something in me and now I'm here because of something that he invested. I want people in Baltimore to say, man, we, we came because we heard a message that he preached. We came because we were there and, and they gave us some food and, and he, he provided an environment and a church that loved us so much that they welcomed us in even when we were struggling, even when we were stinky, even, even when we were outside of what everybody else felt like was normal, when everybody else looked down on us. That church loved us, that church brought us in, that church welcomed us and we're here today. Because they did that. Guys, that's why we pastor a church in Baltimore. That's why we're here. That's why we're working so hard to broadcast online right now. Because this message of our hope in Jesus is so important. There is nothing more important than this. Please get this. Please get this. If you're watching today and you say, man, I don't, I don't know. How can I be sure? I, I want to be in heaven, but I don't know. I remember when I was growing up, I, I thought the rapture was going to come at any minute and I wasn't 100% sure if I was going to go or not because I had this internal feeling that, that if the rapture came and I had sinned, I probably wasn't going to make it. Can I tell you something? Guys, you, God is not sending you to hell because you have sinned. He is sending you to heaven because you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. If you have sinned, and you know Jesus, you are still going to, you don't have to, every time you sin, you don't have to say, oh God, please forgive me, please forgive me. You're not gonna remember every time. You're not even gonna know every time. There are gonna be things in your life that you do, and you're going to sin. You are not perfect, but Jesus Christ is perfect perfect and his blood was spilled for you so that you could be saved. And it is not about your performance. It is about his perfection and his grace, which has been extended over you that gives you access to heaven. So if you're struggling and you think, man, I've sinned, man, I don't know if I qualify. I'm going to tell you right now, you don't qualify, but he does. And because he does, he brings you with him. And you get to be in heaven because you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you have believed that God raised him from the dead. As a result, you will be saved. And then Jesus gives you the pattern for the rest of your life. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man abides in me, he will bear much fruit. He narrows down all of the commandments to such a simple form because he doesn't want you worried and locked up thinking about, well, I didn't keep that commandment and I didn't keep that commandment and I've got a checklist on my refrigerator and if I can keep and do and if I can perform and make it, then I'll be able to know that's not how it works. And so Jesus simplifies everything and he tells you, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. He's trying to give you a prescription for how to live so that you're not always knotted up with the rules. You're just embracing this idea that Jesus posited just love, 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 live in love, live in love. And so I want you to get this. I want you to understand this. I want you to live in this because Jesus loves you so very much. He wants you to be in heaven with him. God is not the judge looking for everything that you did wrong so that he can send you to hell. He designed heaven with you in mind and he wants you to join him there one day. And I hope that you will. So if you want to make a decision today to follow Jesus, it's not complicated. It's very simple. And a lot of times the way that we encourage people to start their relationship with Jesus is simply by praying and saying, God, I'm so sorry for all of my sins. I believe that you died, that you rose again, and that you live in heaven, making a place for me. God, will you help me? Help me live my life following you, loving like you do. I want your will to be done in my life. That's a great starting point. Get connected with your local church. Read the word invest yourself in loving people. Again, it's not about working to love people. It's just invest yourself in loving people with no strings attached. Love God with no strings attached. This is the place where you have crossed the line of faith and are living your life for somebody other than you. And that's God's plan for you. And that's why God designed heaven for you. Guys, thanks for joining us online today. We hope that you've been enriched by this time. We hope that this has been informative. We hope this helps you to grow in your relationship with God. I'm going to pray over you, and then we're going to close. Father God, thank you for each person that's tuned in online. I ask God that your spirit would hover over them in the midst of this Uh, difficult season. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to them. I pray that they would grow in new ways. I pray, God, that their hearts would be turned to you. And God, we pray that you would do something in this season that would change the way that we live, that will prepare us for what you have in store for the future. Lord, we love you. I can't wait for the day when we get to see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.